Geogreve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Today's headlines are understandably dominated by the very sad news of the death of Queen Elizabeth II, who was the head of the Church of England. Next week, we'll explore in more detail the significance of her death and the accession of her son, King Charles III, who once said that he wouldn't be simply defender of the faith, the title that his mother and previous monarchs bore, but also a defender of faith. But now to this evening. In a few moments, we'll ask Bishop Dennis Nulty about the recent trend for making all the bishops of Rome into saints, and we'll hear music written to celebrate the kindness of another Irish bishop from much farther back. But first, we turn to an interfaith minister who recently relocated to the Inishowen Peninsula, asking what such a way of life involves and how it relates to wider faith communities. Patricia Higgins was ordained in 2020 as a one-spirit minister, having previously studied theology and economics and worked in youth ministry and non-profit management. Patricia, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. It's lovely to be here. Before you became a one-spirit minister, you were a long-time advocate for reform in the Catholic Church, which I believe you call rewilding. Yes, I guess that could be said to be true. The, the principal experience that pushed me to look for change in the church was that of being married. Uh, I got married to someone who had previously been a Jesuit and uh, remained a priest, so did not want to say that he was no longer a priest in order to be married. He felt that being a priest was something that he couldn't say he wasn't anymore. Uh, I hope that makes some sense. Mm -hmm. So that left us in a position that we could not be married in church. Um, and as someone, uh, for myself, as someone for whom faith had been enormously important for lots of different reasons um, growing up and was something that I found myself to want to be involved in working in and had had very many positive experiences of, I was really saddened that the church that we both had given a lot to through our work and had found great connections with people through wasn't able to recognise our commitment to each other. So not far from here, I'm speaking to you from Derry, not far from here, um, along the, locks, the, the shores of the Foyle, we had a beautiful ceremony um, when we got married. But it was really hard to, to find a way to do that because at the time... Uh, we couldn't get married in church and um, the other option to be legally married was to have a civil ceremony and, and that didn't allow any mention of anything transcendent. N nothing about God, nothing about faith. So yes, we put together a ceremony that um, had, I guess, modelled a form of church that we would like to see, which had lay people involved uh, leading it, women a pregnant friend read the gospel. Um, it was very inclusive, young people, old people, our parents blessed our rings. So we worked hard to make people feel involved and welcome and for there to be a sense of God in the room. Um, I was scared that as a hotel room that had maybe had a teenage disco the night before that there would be no sense of the secret in the room. But it was the people that brought the secret. And so that, that really shaped how I feel church can be uh, and, and, and in a way should be. 
church, I guess, means lots of different things, buildings, institutions, and, and people of God. And I would like to see a church that is about people of God sharing what they have to offer with each other and exploring their faith together. So out of the hurt and anger of not being able to have your own wedding in the church to which you belonged and in which you you both worked, um, came this new experience of liturgy that gave you a new understanding of church. Absolutely, Siobhan. Coming, it allowed me to find myself in a place out on the edge of church and to realise that um, I had something in common with people who might feel a little bit over church but not over God and that that was a, a, a space I wanted to offer something into. So interfaith, the training I took was for uh, people of all faiths and none, but I guess I feel most drawn to work with people who are in that partially post-Catholic space and to do that in a way that uses processes that are participative and engage people. And, and maybe to give an example of that, I, I belong with a number of groups who gather informally. Um, recently we met around the Ascension. Um, we went for a beach walk and we deliberately asked a kind of a getting to know you question that would allow young people and old people to be on something of the same level. And I guess that's the kind of space that is absolutely about the core message of the church, but uses different structures and processes to allow people to be involved and to be part of co-creating the space where God becomes real. And I think that kind of space is really relevant, uh, much needed. I know the report on the National Synodal Pathways process points to the need for adult faith development spaces. Um, and, and I think that it's, they have used processes in that pathways engagement that, that are participative. I guess the next step is to actually use them meaningfully and consistently within liturgy. So was it that you um, participated in these parachurch or on the edge of church uh, liturgical experiences and through that felt a call to be a certain type of minister? Or had you felt a call to ministry um, in, in, your, in your life before your wedding um, as a woman who might have felt a call to ministry but then not been able to pursue it? I, I had very much felt a call to ministry prior to my wedding. I guess that the wedding kind of sharpened the focus and gave me an experience of what of what was possible outside church walls. I never had fully considered what was possible outside church structures before. And I guess, yeah, previously I had worked in young adult ministry for some time. Um, I guess it allowed me to, the, the wedding and, and the privilege of now being able to marry people and doing that in, in, in lots of different spaces, including outside um, has, I guess, fed into, and actually it's a year since I married my first couple legally, that fed into a, a sense of rewilding, of, of being outside the walls, but in a space that is about seeding newness, freshness. Uh, I, I had an image of the gorse. Uh, I remember spying it outside when I'd felt particularly put down as a woman, um, an experience I don't need to go into. But when I was outside in the walled garden after that experience, tramping around, raging at God for why is it so hard to find a place to offer gifts? And this was well, uh, this was shortly after my wedding. Um, I spied through the, 
the door, a door in the wall, that there was gorse on the hillside and the gorse was at its absolutely aflame. It was just glorious at the time. And that for me became a real image of what I want to be about. I wanted to connect with the pockets of um, community faith groups that I knew were out there, people authentically trying to live their faith and to make sense of it in today's world. I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to be part of offering that to others. And in terms of coming back to your question about reform, reform for me is, is about what happens within the walls. And I admire the tenacity of people who've stuck with that struggle. But for me, with a limited amount of time as a mum with three young children, um, I, I felt I want to our wedding forced us to be the change and I guess that experience though very difficult at the time in some ways showed me that that's where I want my energy to be. I want to be about being the change not pushing for permission that that could be possible within the church structures. Does it does it matter to you how those church structures see you or describe you? Um, I, I was a, I was I was an A student at school. I liked being seen as the good girl. Siobhan. Of course, it doesn't come easy to be seen as somehow bold and aberrant. But uh, to be honest, it means it, the the quality of connection that I've had and that I value in my own life with people in those spaces is enough of a draw, and I believe in it enough that I I won't wait for permission. I, I can't. I only have one life, so yes, I might be seen as I know I'm seen as outside the box, but um, that's so be it. Um, I can't afford to spend more time being angry about that. If ordination were available within the Roman Catholic Church. Would you put yourself forward for it? Um, I don't think ordination is going to come in a way for women that would, would allow me as, as a married mum and someone married to a former priest. I'd say I'm well down the pecking order. But if it were to become available, I, I think I'm not sure I would be. I, I don't want a place in the structure as is. I, I'm more interested in seeing how the structure can be renewed and revised. And so it would... I think it would have to be a very different structure that I would feel comfortable to step into. Patricia Higgins, thank you very much. Thank you, Siobhan. This month marks 40 years since Albino Luciani was elected Pope. He was the first one ever to take two names, those of his immediate predecessors. Pope John Paul I is often remembered for serving only 33 days and for suspicions that his death was not natural a narrative immortalised in the Godfather films. But on Sunday, his story was significantly enriched when he was beatified in the Vatican. Bishop Dennis Nolte, the Bishop of Kildare and Lachlan, has been following the story closely and is here to tell us more. You're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. I'm delighted to join with you and the listeners on Leap of Faith this evening. I believe you were drawn to the work and life of Pope John Paul I from a young age, having done a school project on him when you were 15. Absolutely right. At the age of 15, I completed a school project on him. I was fascinated by him. Don't ask me why. Maybe it was there were three popes in the one year in 1978, but something captured me about, captivated about this man, Pope John Paul I, Albino Luciani. His words always defending the poor and that wonderful smile, Siobhan, that everyone remembers. He's known really as the smiling Pope. Um, his tenure was uh, famously brief as Pope. 
and yet he's remembered with great affection. Is this, is this just because of the power of his smile or are there other things that you think are important about his legacy? I think we need to look at the motto he chose as bishop was humilitas, humility. And it was coming from somebody who, who lived soberly, firm in his faith, open to a social point of view, always close to the poor and to the workers. When he was Patriarch of Venice, he opened his home to the poor and they came in great numbers. He didn't judge people. And I think that people like that and people are attracted very much to that. The circumstances surrounding the death of John Paul I, they've continued to capture the popular imagination in bestsellers and movies where it's suggested uh, strongly that he was murdered rather than that he died of natural causes. Um, And I'm thinking a a very recent example would be Al Pacino, um, his character Michael Corleone um, in The Godfather Coda from 2020. He assists in both the Pope's death and that of Roberto Calvi, the Vatican banker. Why, Why do you think that there is still such fascination with this story of that Pope John Paul I was murdered. Um, why, why does this fascination persist all these years later? I, I think it has a lasting place because it was a very sudden death. He was only 33 days in the papacy. He died suddenly on the night of September 28, 1978. And people are, are, are very much drawn into that. But the Vatican is part of their a study in, in, of, of John Paul would have looked very much clearly on the death on the, and have closed the case on, on, on his death and still fascinates people. It still interests people in films and books. I'm always much more interested in how we live than necessarily on, on, the, on the whole thing of death. I think, and the life that this man lived is a life of humility from beginning to end. Of course, the church doesn't beatify people or canonise them in the next step on the basis of their commitment to the poor alone. It also requires there to have been a miracle verified for beatification. Can you tell us um, something about um, the miracle that is attributed to John Paul I and, and what you think about it, how you think of miracles in the modern age? Wonderful. The Congregation for the Causes of Saints are tasked with the process around canonization as the journey. And remember that for Pope John Paul I, it's 44 years since he died. So it's, it's, it's been a long journey. And the congregation look at everything, and you're absolutely right, they just don't look at his humility, don't look at his attitude to the poor, but look at very much a healing coming through his intercession. The healing was of an 11-year-old girl who is at the end of her life with severe, acute, an epileptic illness and septic shock. She had a huge number of complicated issues. Situation very serious. There were numerous daily seizures and she had also bronchopneumonia. Everything was complicated. The parish priest in the hospital in Brazil where she was a patient, he invoked Pope John Paul I, his intercession, and she was cured. So that is the miracle and that's, that's what brings us to the event that leads to the beatification of John Paul I now. Of course, another miracle will be needed if John Paul I is to be canonised, made a saint. And 
although this requirement was waived by Pope Francis for John the Twenty Third, do you think it might be waived uh, by Pope Francis for John Paul the First, or do you know? Are there any reported miracles being checked out? I don't. I, I don't know because it, obviously Universal Church is huge, and uh, th- there indeed could be other cures being looked at and and and, and seeing where exactly their intersection is. But I think that's not the important point. I think the important point, Siobhan, is that we're all called to be saints today. The Second Vatican Council, the Universal Synod journey we're on at the moment, asks all of us in some ways to be a model of holiness to others. And Pope Francis himself is great on this when he talks about, you know, parents who raise their children with immense love. Men and women working hard to support their families, the sick, the elderly, religious, who never lose their smile, like Albino Luciani, John Paul I. As you say, according to Catholic teaching, we're, we're all called to be saints, although very few of us will be canonised. And in fact, only about 30% of popes throughout history have been canonised. But in the 20th century, only two haven't been beatified or canonised. And I wonder, why do you think the Vatican nowadays makes almost all popes into saints? Or to ask it another way... Why does the church want us to see its most senior clerics as saints? It's a very good question. It's interesting that in the the last thousand years, only eight popes were canonised and four of them from the 20th century. Obviously, the vicar of Christ, the successor of Peter, has to be someone who who is a man of deep faith and deep commitment. And they're elected in a conclave and we're all, it's, a media spectacle, the whole country, but also it's a time of the Holy Spirit working in a very deep and profound way. And I think we do need to be sure that the person chosen, like Pope Francis today, is a man who deeply impacts the lives of millions. But I would think that John Paul I, Francis today, the last thing they would want in some ways would, would be to, to canonise, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but they, they, they live their life to influence others and by their example and by their humility. I think myself that John Paul I is the Francis long before his time. Bishop Dennis Nolte, Bishop of Kildare and Lachlan, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you, Siobhan. Thanks very much. This Sunday evening in the National Concert Hall, the harpist Leisha Kelly will play a tune named for another bishop. It's part of a concert called Drawing from the Well, which will bring together some of Ireland's leading musicians to delve into the collections of the Irish Traditional Music Archive and reinterpret them for today's world. The concert will tour the country on Monday through Friday of the coming week in Derry, Castlebar, Inishir, Listole and Burr, County Offaly. The piece Leisha will play was written by Turlock O'Carolan and bears the name of its subject, Dr John Hart, Bishop of O'Connery. In 2020, Leisha Kelly was awarded Musician of the Year by T.G. Cahar's Gradham Kjol. A native of Westport County Mayo, she lives on Ackle Island and has recorded several acclaimed solo albums, as well as collaborating with some of the greats of contemporary music at home and abroad. Leisha, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Brilliant. Thanks a million for inviting us. 
I understand this piece that you're going to play um, at these six concerts in the, in the next seven days. It's new to you, isn't it? How, how did you come by it? Well, I've, I've seen it for uh, a good many years because there's an awful lot of Carolyn Junes that a lot of us still don't even play that people haven't heard. And I have put my hands across it a few times. And it's funny, every tune in, in one of the archive books always seems like, pick me, pick me. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it's funny that it just, uh, this time around, um, I had a little time in the Tyrone Guthrie Centre and it, it just came off the page, I don't know. And I think maybe understanding a little about this man, you know, that tells a story and we're able to find out that he was the Bishop of Aconry in 1735 and Carolyn looked forward to meeting him and uh, and it just, it's, it just speaks so highly of him. It, it just kind of brought it to life more or it gave me, I don't know, more uh, encouragement to go on. There's a lightness of spirit and it's quite noble and uplifting and and also Carolyn would be known for his imitation of classical masters, but this piece seems to refer back to um, the older harp style. It's kind of in a kind of narration or it's telling a story. The phrasing of it is kind of bringing us along. But there there are words too, of course, and, and um, all in praise of this great man, Dr. John Hart from uh, Clunamahan in County Sligo. What, what else do we know about Dr. John Hart, other than that he was from Clunamahan and that he was a bishop? Um, that he was um, very generous and uh, pious. And uh, there's a lovely little legend that says he, he was renowned for his hospitality and his kindness to birds. And that it's a, the pleasing legend that when he died, all the birds of the locality assembled at his funeral and chanted his requiem. So I thought that was lovely. And I, I can imagine... Uh, Carolyn sauntering along on a, on a summer's day uh, on his horse heading to um, John O'Hart's house and, you know, being excited about the thoughts of getting there. And, and this piece just, I don't know, I've, I've, that's where I've gone in my head, I suppose, to to bring it off the page. Um, is that lovely, meandering, respectful, uh, beautiful. It's very, very pretty. It's a pretty little tune. And you say that it has a lightness of spirit and it's uplifting. Do you think that that reflects the character of the late bishop or stories about him? Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly it. I think that's what I feel when I when I hear the music. I'm thinking about this man who I don't know, but he sounds like a great man, and you know, you just you'd like to meet him. <laughs> yeah, and of course, once he he was made bishop, he was supposed to sign the Oath of Supremacy and refused. And there's a terrible story that follows after that, isn't there? That's right, because he himself and his brother Charles were the landowners in Clunamahan Beg and Moor. And of course, at the time, uh, Catholics couldn't own land. So um, he, I suppose that the, the natural thing at the time would have been to find a, a neighbourly uh, Protestant to put the land in their names um, and very often that worked out well for them because they kept the land, they lived there, but the, the title was under their neighbour's name. But this man, um, yeah, he turned out to be not such a good egg and went straight to Dublin Castle and took the land for himself and kicked him off, which is shocking. Um, do you know, cause especially because of this lovely nature you can feel from this man. Um, but then another great neighbour took him in, so which is great. <laughs> It's lovely to hear how it's music that has kept this minister's memory alive and how yeah. it conveys such 
respect and affection for him, even after so many years. I know. Isn't it great? He's back to life now. Leisha Kelly, thank you so much for um, being willing to give us a preview and for getting into our Galway studio to to do this for us this evening. Uh, We will play out with Leisha Kelly on harp performing Dr John Hart, Bishop of Connery. Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Sheila Nivriel and John Doyle. The researcher was Kate Brennan-Harding. The broadcast coordinators are Jarlath Holland and Elaine Conlon. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan.